Well, many years ago, a young man who was, I think, 19 years old when he came to Monterey arrived to our church. He uh, was from Denmark, and he came to the Monterey Peninsula to stay with an aunt and an uncle to intern here for a year and to sort of experience American life before he went back to Denmark to continue his studies. And because his family members were part of Calvary, uh, he began attending church. And I don't know how seriously he'd really considered the gospel uh, well in Denmark, but while he was here, God impacted him in a major way, and he submitted his life to Jesus. And he was just one of these guys who began devouring the Bible, began devouring Christian teaching uh, very quickly, and soon he was a solid Christian man. And during his time here, he and I developed a friendship together. And after he extended his stay as much as he, or as long as he could, he ended up going back to Denmark, and we maintained our relationship. In fact, early on in my pastoral life, back when I was the young adult pastor here in the church and the youth pastor uh, as well, um, Christina and I, in the first year of our marriage, actually prayed about moving to Denmark to start a church with uh, this young man. We loved him and loved what God was doing uh, in his life. Uh, but but that door didn't open for us. But after a few years of him being away in Denmark, he reached out to me to ask if I would come out to a conference uh, to speak to Christians from Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Uh, he didn't have to ask twice. And after 10 years of going there many different times to minister to this small group of precious believers, um, I began to really learn what God was doing. It wasn't just that I was going there to teach them. They were teaching me. You see, what I had discovered there was a small contingent of committed Christians who were most certainly the religious minority in their communities. Their love for Jesus was sincere, and they all realized their intense need for one another. Um, they really had no expectation that their uh, Christianity would have a heavy influence on their societies. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't expect laws or curriculums or morals or priorities around them to reflect biblical standards. In, instead, what I discovered is that these people just expected to be different. They expected to stand out from the crowd. And I mentioned this beautiful little group that I got to interact with for about a decade because they, to me, are like the exiles that Peter wrote to in his first letter. You know, I learned a lot from them. Some Christians, of course, live where Christianity is socially accepted. But Christianity, I think, in Northern California or on the Central Coast is trending towards looking like Christianity in secularized Europe. You know, we can still vote, litigate, teach, and contribute to society according to our biblical convictions, praise God, and we should do that. But those Scandinavian believers gave me a glimpse, I think, into the future unless God intervenes in a massive way. Many parts of the United States are heading in the direction of Europe. Perhaps it's time for us to learn more 
from the church's experience there. Okay, and the believers that Peter wrote to also found themselves as the religious minority. Slanderous accusations were cast against them. They believed and behaved differently than their society, and they were beginning to feel the pressure. And they likely wondered, what should we do? Should we angrily fight and ridicule our society? Should we flee town for more welcoming communities? Should we conform our views and our behaviors to look just like the culture around us? Now, as I pointed out last week, Peter will show them all through his letter that the answer is not to fight, flee, or conform. Not to fight, flee, or conform. You see, fighting in the wrong sense of the word, with unrighteous anger, feelings of superiority, or an expectation that an unconverted world will somehow miraculously behave as if they are converted, that's what institutional Christianity does. Institutional Christianity thinks there are Christian nations that should reflect Christian teachings. Another word for institutional Christianity is Christendom. But Christendom was a mistake because Jesus goes after individuals who make up nations, not nations made up of individuals. Now fleeing, that's what escapist Christianity does. Escapist Christianity thinks we just need to hold on until Jesus gets us out of this place. But escapist Christianity rejects and neglects Jesus's mission. And conforming, you know, just reshaping yourself to fit in with society, that's what progressive Christianity does. Progressive or liberal Christianity bends doctrines and warps scriptures to become more palatable to society. But society isn't interested in watered-down Christianity, and progressive Christianity is not Christianity anyways. Now, instead of angrily fighting, fleeing, or conforming, Peter is going to show us in this letter, as I told you last week, how to stand firm. He said in 1 Peter 5, verse 12, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, after everything I've said up to this point, you know, going to Scandinavia, seeing the way that believers there were treated and the way they treated one another, their urgency for gathering because they were such a small contingent, you might think that I'm a despairing pastor and a depressed Christian, uh, but not at all. I have great hope in God. I'm excited about what God is doing on earth today. I personally never expected to be in the majority. I've always known that if Christianity was ever the majority, it would not be the historical norm. Some say they are shocked at the rapid rejection of Christianity in our society today. And I'm shocked also that it's not quicker, that it's not worse. No, the normal Christian experience is one on the margins. One day when Jesus returns, we will be done with the margin life because our Lord will be at the center of all things. But right now we get to live the exciting and hope-filled life of Jesus' followers. But where do we get this hope? I'm calling it today exile 
hope. Peter told these believers that they were exiles who'd been dispersed through that region. And so I'm calling this exile hope. Where do we get this hope? Where does it come from? Well, let's look at our short text for today. Verse three and five of 1 Peter chapter one. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, now the first thing I want you to see from this beautiful sentence from Peter, the opening really part of his letter, is that exile hope starts with praise. Exile hope starts with praise. Peter, here he is writing to a dispersed and exiled group of believers, many of whom had experienced economic persecution, verbal assaults, and social rejection for their beliefs, he pivots his letter right here. He shifts from his introduction, which we saw last week, to praise. Peter was praising God and urging his readers to praise God when he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, there in verse three. To bless God is to praise God. So Peter is worshiping and he is commending, commanding even, them to be a worshiping people. Now, think about this. You know, the thing about being a dispersed and exilic Christian is that I think you often at times feel homeless. Now, I understand that homelessness is a real and serious issue, so I don't mean to make light of it by using the term to describe the feelings that Christians might have. So go with me, if you will. You know, we live in a society that gravitates towards stark and simple, polarized views. But a lot of times, I think, believers take their Bibles out, read them, study them, and really feel out of place. We feel without a home. And there have been so many times in my life as a Christian man that I have felt that proverbial homelessness because of who I am in Jesus. You know, I've felt homeless, for instance, when I've watched in modern times the secular or sexual revolution run its full course into what it is today. But I've also felt homeless watching people resist that sexual revolution with vitriol instead of resisting with reason and with love. I've felt homeless every time I've seen a parent who seems incapable of telling their child no and setting some form of boundaries. But on the other hand, I've also felt homeless when I've seen those harsh and uncaring parents who have no relationship with their children, but their word is the law of the home. I've felt homeless when trying to find something that won't degrade me on Netflix. And I've felt homeless when someone's told me I should never watch TV in the first place. I've felt homeless when the left does 
it's super left things, and when the right does, it's super right things. You know, I felt homeless when trying to find decent music to work out to. And I felt homeless when someone suggests I should just listen to worship music when pumping iron. You know, I've felt homeless so many different times. Homeless when surveying the political options at my disposal, when watching what people spend their money on. Felt homeless when refusing Sunday sports for my children. Felt homeless tithing, being faithful to my wife, or spending so much time studying a book that is thousands of years old. It's a different feeling. You just feel like this world is not my home. And that's just me. Those are just my experiences. I'm sure you've had thousands of experiences as a believer that might cause you to feel without a home. And the believers that Peter wrote to had similar experiences. They were exiled. They felt homeless. Yet Peter did not do what so many preachers do today. He did not stoke their anger and tell them to condescendingly fight. He did not play on their fear and tell them to flee. And he did not question their wavering convictions and tell them to conform or change their minds. Instead, he directed them to God. He wanted them to praise God. You see, when you are feeling unmoored, without a home, without a position in society, you gotta pause to praise God. You know, as Peter said, God is the majestic being, both the Father and the Son. He came to die for us, is what he is alluding to there in verse three. And setting our eyes on him in worship can help us with anger and fear and wavering. Worshiping him can bring you home, in other words. In worship, you confront a God who is angry with sin, but also angry without sinning. In worship, you confront a God who fears nothing. And in worship, you confront a God who is unchangeable and will not bend to popular opinion. So I encourage you to pursue God when you feel alone and without a home because of your Christianity. You know, the nature of your beliefs and your lifestyle is lived out because of your Christian convictions, your biblical convictions, will put you on the fringe of society in many ways. And on the fringe, you might feel lonely, but your Father in heaven is there for you. He wants you to engage with him. He wants to befriend and guide you. He wants to satisfy your heart. He wants to give you hope. And exile hope, it begins with praising God, getting your mind and heart upward, vertical towards him. But the second thing I want you to see in these verses is that exile hope is alive. Peter told us to praise God. That's what we've looked at in the first line of verse 3. But he went on to say in the second part of verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now this astounding news for the exiled Christians uh, that Peter wrote is simple. God caused them, verse 3, to be born again, just as he caused us, if you're a believer today, to be born again. Now in the introduction in verse 1 that we looked at last week, we saw how these people, and by extension us, were the elect 
of God. Here we see another reason for their new birth. He says in verse three that they were born again because of God's compassionate mercy or according to God's great mercy there in verse three. And this new birth is secured by nothing other, Peter says, than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Since Jesus is alive, believers in Jesus are alive. We have been born again. But why did Peter feel that it was necessary to tell these beleaguered and rejected Christians that they were born again? Okay, Think of it like this. Your birth story, it says a lot about you. You know, for me, I was born with a mother and father who were in the first year of planting a church the year that I was born. I was born at CHOMP, the community hospital of the Monterey Peninsula, for those of you who don't know. I was born into a home that provided the basic necessities and not much more. I was born into a gospel-loving home, a Bible-loving home. And all these realities impacted me in one way or another. That's just the way that it works for us as human beings. People receive things like ethnic identity, national citizenship, and socioeconomic class from their parents. But Peter is saying that Christians have a new birth that gives them a new identity and a new citizenship that redefines everything for them. And this is really important when society rejects you, as it had these early Christians that Peter wrote to. It's strengthening to know that you have a new identity, citizenship, and future because of your new birth. And this new birth, according to Peter, produces a living hope. That's what he says in verse three, if you'd look at it there in your Bibles. It produces a living hope. What does that mean? What does the phrase living hope mean? Well, living hope is not dead hope. You know, I can say that I hope to pitch one day for the Los Angeles Dodgers, but I'm pretty sure that's not gonna happen. I'm still holding out a little bit of hope, but that might be a hope against hope kind of scenario. You see, dead hope is just one of those things. It's an illusion. It's not real. Living hope is also not like natural hope. You see, in Peter's mind, our hope is connected to Jesus's resurrection. That's unnatural. Natural hope is limited by time and space and norms that govern our lives, but living hope has resurrected power attached to it. And living hope is the opposite of hopeless. You know, many people are toiling in hopelessness. You know, many of the philosophies and theories that explain human existence today give no hope but merely declare that we're a bucket of cells that one day will cease to exist. You might as well experience pleasure as much as you can because one day you will die. And this is a hopeless perspective about life. And it's led many into deep depression and despair. But the new birth gives the Christian a hope that is 
alive. That's what Peter said, a living hope. This means our hope is growing and progressing over time. It lives, it breathes, it develops. And it's alive because it's based on the realist reality. Jesus, his kingdom, his resurrection. We know what the universe is about. We know who made us. And we know what our ultimate future holds with him. Now, it's interesting to me that Peter started this whole letter to exiled and dispersed and suffering Christians with hope. You know, as I said, he did not pander to their experiences. To me, Peter is speaking to these Christians like a father, like a dad. He's telling them, praise God. Literally, do it. Praise God because you're born again. You have a hope that is alive. This is the reality that goes beyond what you're experiencing in your dimension right now. Now, Some of his readers might have lost their jobs or social standing or even their families because of Jesus. Similar to the way that some in some cultures will disinherit a family member who comes to Christ. But amid all that loss, Peter directed his readers to hope. You know, in one sense, you could say it like this. Believers ought to be the most hopeful people on earth. We ought to be the most hopeful people on earth. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we are oblivious to the pains of this world, nor do I mean that we are eternally optimistic that everything will just get better. We believe really sobering doctrines as Christians. We believe in human depravity, for instance, that humanity is broken and lost without Jesus. We believe in eternal judgment. We believe sin has permeated everything. These are weighty, sobering, hard truths. So when I say that we're hopeful, I don't mean we have our heads in the clouds. What I mean is that we know our destiny. As dark as it might get, we have a living hope, a solid conviction, a firm expectation of Christ's return for us. We know where all this is going. You know, in my house, every once in a while, someone else's socks in my family will get into my sock bin. And I don't know if you know this about my family, but it's me, my wife, and three daughters. I am by far the biggest person in my home. So when this happens and I pull out one of their socks, if they're the same color as mine, they look like mine, I'll try to put them on, and it becomes obvious in two seconds that these are not my socks. You know, women, women's size sevens just don't fit on men's size 13s. They just don't fit. I say that to say that despair does not fit a true Christian. We're born again to a living, alive, vibrant, real, exciting, tangible, truer than any reality you can see with your fleshly vision, reality and hope. That is ours in Christ Jesus. So living hope, that's what fits because 
Exile hope is alive. But there's one more thing I want you to see from this passage. Not only have we been born again to a living hope, not only does this hope begin with God and is centered upon praising him, but he says that we've been born again to a living hope, but also to, verse four, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, he says there in verse four. Now, when the Bible talks about an inheritance for God's people, there's always the Old Testament connection that the reader might make because much of the Old Testament was focused on giving the people of Israel a, an inheritance. And even after they received the land that God promised to them, it was about maintaining that inheritance and not neglecting what God had given to them. And when God delivered the people of Israel from four centuries of Egyptian slavery and took them to the land that he'd reserved for them, he began to make them promises. They were his people and he had specific things in mind for them. He had an inheritance for them. Now the interesting thing is that many of God's promises or the inheritance that he gave to ancient Israel, they were physical in nature. He gave them land, he gave them health, he gave them crops. If they walked with him, they would continue to receive God's prosperous blessings in those ways. Now when Jesus came along, he brought a new covenant filled with different promises, a different inheritance. You know, those watching his life might have guessed that his promises would be less physical in nature, at least at first. You know, when he came, he was poor, he lived in obscurity, and often leaned on the care and provision of others. He even said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This was all suggestive that his kingdom would be made of more than the physical realm. Something was shifting in God's inheritance for his people. And now Peter, he hops on the Jesus bus by proclaiming that we have an inheritance from God by our new birth. It is kept in heaven for us, he says in verse four. Clearly, this is in line with the idea that the new covenant did not promise us wealth and health in this life. And most model Christians, in the Bible at least, including Jesus, suffered much for the faith. But if we're honest, in the midst of society's rejection, believers might wish that God had a different plan. Wouldn't it be nice if walking with God secured our prosperity? Now, I do think, by the way, that abiding in Christ and walking with God and obeying his dictates, I believe that it will lead to a wise life. And wisdom often leads to human flourishing. So it'd be wrong to suspect that every Christian will be impoverished. My point is that we might be disappointed that God doesn't value a physical inheritance as much as we do. But on the other hand, I believe that God, in one sense, values physical blessings more than we do. This is why he's reserved them for the eternal state. Everything here on earth has a temporary tinge to it. 
but his forever kingdom will be packed with spiritual and physical blessings. Health and prosperity will couple with spiritual fervor and joy. The internal and external you will be perpetually delighted when you receive the fullness of that inheritance forever. Now God knows that a physical inheritance would be nice right now, but he's working hard to secure a people for an inheritance that, according to Peter in verse four, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's what our inheritance is. Now what do these descriptions mean? Well, our internal inheritance is imperishable because it's free of death and decay. You know, everything in our physical realm is subject to decay. The new car always loses its new car smell and over enough time turns into a beater. The first iPhone over time turns into a relic. The new wardrobe eventually will become a laughingstock. And then if you hang on to it long enough, it'll be in style again. Don't get me started on our bodies, perishable. But God's inheritance, according to Peter, is forever. But he also says that our eternal inheritance is undefiled. And the reason that he says that is because what God is going to give us is free from uncleanness and evil. It's unstained by evil. You know, it feels like you can't even buy a t-shirt these days that isn't stained by evil somehow along the line. But the eternal inheritance will be untouched by death and evil. But Peter says, lastly, that our eternal inheritance is unfading because it cannot be impaired by time. Uh, Beauty fades and newness evaporates, but not in the eternal kingdom of God. There, the natural ravages of time reverse and beauty transcends as we forever go from glory to glory. It is unfading, it is undefiled, and it is imperishable. Now, as Peter said, this inheritance will be, he said in verse four, kept in heaven for us. God is guarding that inheritance, reserving it, for our forever life with him. Okay, but the knowledge of our future inheritance, it might raise a question in your mind. If God is keeping that inheritance for me, if he's reserved it for me, if he's guarding it for me, that's great, but what if I fail? You know, persecution is hard. Rejection is difficult. What if I am not kept for that inheritance. But Peter answers that question in our final verse today. He said in verse five that we are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Okay, what this means is that while God is guarding our inheritance, he is also guarding us. He takes our little mustard seed of faith in his gospel, and uses it as a pipeline for his power to keep us for our future salvation. And God's power is now unleashed 
to guard his elect, his children, those who've trusted in Christ and his gospel until, he says in verse five, their salvation is revealed. You know, the Bible teaches that God's children are saved, that we are being saved as we grow in him, and that we one day will be saved. In the future, we will be delivered from all the brokenness of our time. Jesus will return, and his kingdom will reign forever. Now, Peter knew that it would be easy for his readers to fixate on what they could see, what they felt, or their daily experience. So he tried from the outset of his letter to get them to focus on their heavenly inheritance. And brothers and sisters, I I really believe this is of immense importance. I think that's why he put it first in his letter. It's not an escapist way of doing the Christian life, to be thinking of the future inheritance. I think what it is is, well, if I put it like this, it's easy in our 24-hour news cycle world to think a lot, to think often about our physical country, our tangible world, and what's happening inside of it. It's easy to think often about our finances, our situation, our future, our struggle here on earth. And it is so much harder to see heaven. But when we do, we become better for life today. Last week, I told you that when Peter wrote this letter, my understanding of it is that it seems like he took the attitude of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote to ancient Israelite exiles way before the time of Christ. When he wrote to them, they were in a country far away, living in the city of Babylon. And he said to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, one of the men that heard Jeremiah's prophecies that was targeted by Jeremiah's words was Daniel. Only a teenager, when he was carried off to Babylon, Daniel did not fight did not flee, and did not conform. Instead, he stood firm in the true grace of God. Though he couldn't get the whole Babylonian society to live like he did, he insisted on personally keeping God's law. He refused to defile himself by consuming things that God had forbidden for his people. He would not refrain from praying when God told him to pray. And he also served various kings who came and went throughout his 70 years of exile. He had taken Jeremiah's words to heart. And the Babylonians and Daniel were blessed as a result. And the more conscious you are of your better and secure and future inheritance, 
the better you'll be at blessing your community, though you are far different from it. Like Daniel, you will enjoy God and his benefits in the midst of a world that doesn't know him. You will feel the pleasure and privilege of being close with him. And you will do the exilic Christian life without anger, fear, or wavering because exile hope enjoys God's inheritance already. So may we be a group of believers whose hope is alive because of what Christ has done for us.